Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading over the summer uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church together. Uh, Paul had founded the church there, but he had to leave that city a lot sooner than he wanted to. So when he finally heard uh, that they were doing okay in his absence, he wrote this letter. Uh, it is a letter of a joyful relief, encouraging them in their faith, in their really young, fresh faith, and uh, also teaching them about things that Christians everywhere wonder about. And that's the part of the letter that we're in now. We're going to talk about Paul teaching his friends about what he calls the day of the Lord, uh, what it will be like when Jesus returns and how to live now in light of it. So let me read the first half of chapter 5 for us. I'll read 5 verses 1 through 11, and you can follow along if you want to in the order of worship where it's printed. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, just sang together uh, that all of this would be vain when we gather together if your Holy Spirit doesn't come down to us. And uh, so we just ask that that would be uh, the case as we continue in worship, as we think about this word that we've just read together, as we talk about it together, that you, by the power of your Spirit, would come uh, and shepherd us, that you would come and, and tend to us, every one of us. Uh, in whatever situations we find ourselves this morning, those of us who are ready to hear uh, from you and those of us who aren't, those of us who are sad and those of us who are happy, those of us who are bored or distracted, those of us have, who have faith, those of us who don't, meet us all, show us the grace of Jesus, strengthen us by it, change us by it, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I, uh, I have a friend uh, who for several years was a professor. He taught undergraduate classes. And I think I've mentioned this to some of you before, but sometimes on the first day of a semester, uh, he would walk into the classroom, and instead of walking to the front of the classroom and getting his notes ready or whatever, uh, he would sit down among the students in the middle of the classroom with all the students on that first day of class. He would sit with the students and kind of act uh, like one of the students. 
I don't know exactly why he did that. It might have just been for kicks. Uh, but what it meant was that he got to listen to all the conversations that were happening around him. People talking about their summer breaks or their winter breaks, talking about the people they broke up with or the people that they wanted to uh, date, talking about their other classes, the weather, their new roommate. And sometimes, sometimes, and I think this is the reason he did it, he would get to hear people talking about him. <laughs> about this professor, what they had heard about them, what they were expecting out of his class, what some people had said that they liked about him and what other people had said they don't like about him. And then after he would hear all of this stuff, he'd get up and walk to the front of the class and introduce himself as the professor. And there'd be some surprise and some sideways looks and some laughter, both nervous and happy. I kind of love that he did that. I love that image. Out of this group of students emerged someone who was different than them. One of these is not like the others, as we say. And then he'd start talking about the syllabus or whatever, and things would move on. And I thought about him this week because in doing that, he created an image that's a lot like the one at the heart of the passage that we just read together. Paul paints a picture of a world at night, filled with sleepy people. But growing there in the middle of that world's dark night, among all of those sleepy people, is a small other band of people who are wide awake and who are alert. They are very different. Some of these are not like the others. And that is because they are not people of the night. They are people of the day. And Paul is teaching those baby Christians at that church that this is who they really are. He is saying, you, you are people of the day. And even though it is night all around you, the best way to get ready for the full dawning of that day that is coming, the best way to give a beautiful witness, an eloquent witness to the day that is coming, is to just to live like people of that day. And that is a good word, not just for baby Christians, um, but for all Christians. So Paul uh, starts this with an old rhetorical trick. In verse 1, he says, Now concerning the times and seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. Uh, and then he goes on, of course, to write about it for the next 10 verses. <laughs> Uh, it's an old trick. It's called paralipsis. If you want to look it up later, it's where you actually emphasize something by pretending not to say very much about that thing at all. We do this all the time. We don't need to talk about the $100 that you owe me. We don't even need to have one more conversation about the $100 that you owe me. We do this all the time. But there's some truth, of course, to what he is saying about what they do already know. You yourselves, he writes in verse 2, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay, now it's clear what he's going to be teaching about, the day of the Lord. It's a really, really important theme in the Old Testament in particular. It referred to the day when God was going to return to his people. This was the day that God was going to return to his people, and he was going to vindicate his people in all the earth, and he was going to judge all of the evil that is present in the world and eradicate it forever. That was the day that God was going to remake creation and the peace and justice it was made for in the first place. It is a beautiful day, a day everybody longs for. 
And so not surprisingly, that day in the Old Testament in particular was often associated with light. Like we heard in the Old Testament lesson this morning from Isaiah 60, your sun shall go down no more, nor the moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning, they will be ended. It's the day we all long for, the best day. Even if you're not a Christian, you got to admit, the notion of a day when the evil gets kicked out and the darkness gets kicked out, it's pretty compelling. And starting with Jesus' own teaching about himself and, and what he came to do and who he is, Paul and all of the rest of the New Testament writers said that that day began, that day started, it has already dawned with the birth of Jesus and that it would be fully consummated, that it would be fully day and fully light when he returns again. And Christians, in other words, people like us, we say that we believe that. And we say that we believe that in the creed, every time we say the creed, when we say that Jesus ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We believe that, that that day is coming. So Paul has just been talking, just been writing about Jesus coming again. Pastor David walked us through that at the second half of chapter 4 last week. Paul had just taught about what Jesus' coming would mean for people who die before Jesus' coming happens. And now he's talking about what Jesus' coming means for everyone else. People like you and me who still, for the time being, you know, have a pulse. And I, and I do think it's worth wondering why Paul felt that it was necessary to teach these young Christians, to teach these friends about this day in this particular way that he does. You know, uh, had they just been wondering, you know, when is this exactly going to be? Like, when is it going to be so that we can be ready for it, so that we can, uh, you know, prepare for it? Or maybe Timothy had come and told them that he was, uh, he was worried about them, that he saw the persecution they were facing, and he thought maybe, maybe they're going to just wither under this persecution and fade back into empire. So Paul, you need to remind them about how this whole thing ends, about where God is taking things. Or maybe, you know, maybe these young Christians were just worried about it. You know, like... Am I going to be able to make it through that great and terrible day? Am I going to be able to stand on that day? We don't know exactly what they were wondering about, but all of it gets addressed in one way or another. And so here's the baseline Paul knows they know. That day is going to come like a thief in the night. And they know that because that's what Jesus said about it a bunch of times, like we heard in the gospel lesson that was read this morning. Paul, I'm sure, taught these young Christians, this is what Jesus said about that day. And that's the first of about six metaphors that Paul uses in this short span of verses, and it's pretty obvious what that one means. Burglars generally don't tell people when they're coming. <laughs> Their arrival is a surprise. The second metaphor from verse 3 is like it, the labor pains for a pregnant woman. You know it's coming, you know it's inevitable, it will happen. You just don't know when. And this is where Paul then sets up a contrast, and it's one that he doesn't quickly resolve, and it's a pretty serious one. Paul uses uh, the, 
the imperial sloganeering of the day. He uses the language of the so-called Pax Romana of the empire. And he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. I mean, he's talking about judgment. This is judgment. As in, from thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. And it's been pretty normal for me in the course of my pastoral life, pretty usual for me when I get to places like this in Scripture, to say that we as humans generally dislike the notion of judgment. But the older I get, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not sure that that's exactly true. I mean, maybe there's some of us here this morning, some people you know, who don't like the notion of any judgment at all for any reason. But that is not the majority, not by a long shot, I think. I think that the majority of us are totally fine with judgment. As long as, you know, not us. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, uh, the British journalist Helen Lewis wrote in The Atlantic that she thinks that politics has largely replaced religion as a source of meaning and purpose in many people's lives. Politics has largely replaced religion as a source of meaning and purpose. That sad thesis is not particularly a novel one. It's not really a new one. But the thing that was interesting to me was the evidence that she was using to marshal that argument, and it was the language of judgment. She found herself surprised to say that the language of judgment is being increasingly used by activists on both the left and the right, that concepts like repentance and heresy and apostasy and damnation are being thrown around in political spheres. Even among an increasingly non-religious people, the idea of judgment remains critically important. Like, you know, the kind of like sort it out for real judgment. And that's my point. All of us, deep, deep in the core of who we are, we long for judgment to happen. We want for wrong things to be made right. And we want for crooked places to be straightened out. And we want deep injustices. We want all injustices eradicated. We all want light to chase away darkness. Because we're not made for the darkness. We're made for the light and we long for it and we want it. And that requires a judgment. And I know that I can't be the judge of all the earth, and no offense, but no one I've ever met would be someone that I trust to be the judge of all the earth. That work is properly the work of God himself. I mean, if God can be called good, if, he, if we can say that he's real and that he's good, then he will be the one who sorts out light from dark. It's properly his work. And I want you to know, church, that it is the God who made himself known in Jesus of Nazareth who will do it. It is that God. The God who came not to be served, but to serve. 
the God who came to proclaim liberty to the captives and good news to the poor. It will be that God. That God is the one who does it. The one who is full of grace and truth. That God, the God who gave himself as a ransom for many, it will be that God who does it. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I trust him. I trust him to be the judge of all the earth. And there are some, Paul says, who might be looking to other gods which will provide exactly zero escape on that day. The Roman peace, the Roman security, for one, which of course was just predicated on the threat of swift and merciless violence, or any of the other million gods, people like you and I manufacture that are stand-ins for that ancient and fallen impulse that we have inherited from our first parents. I think I'd prefer to be you, God. I think I might be able to do a little bit better than you. It's a bad spot to be in, I think. A fearful one. And just the smallest bit of wisdom applied means that a human should ask if that's the place where they might be and if they want to stay in that spot. But that is not the case with Paul's friends at all. That is not the situation with them at all. And that's the point that he wants to make. That's really what he wants to linger on. He begins it in verses 4 and 5. You're not in the darkness, though. (laughs) You're not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're all children of light. You are children of the day. We are not of the night, Paul says. We are not of the darkness. Paul's point is so simple and it addresses whatever concerns, whatever questions about being prepared or being ready that they might have had. Sure, you don't know when he's coming. Sure, this is going to be a surprise to you. But none of that matters because you are his people. You belong to him. Paul's reminding them of their essential identity as followers of Jesus, and I bet they could not have heard it enough. They're still in the process of just sorting out, what does it mean? Who are we? What does it mean to be a Christian? As Paul put it back in chapter 1, they had turned from all these other things to serve the living and true God when they came to faith in Jesus, and that simply makes them day people. That makes them light people, even though there is still night all around them. They are people of the day. And when Paul gets rolling, he can hardly stop. I mean, if one or two metaphors work, why not just do five or six metaphors? Whenever you read Paul, you see this. He's got mashups on top of mashups. And so to thieves and labor pains and night and day and light and dark, he adds being awake and being sober. And then he piles on another one in verse 8, putting on some armor the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And those last three, being sober, being awake, putting on that familiar Christian triad of faith and hope and love, it's about how to live. It's all about how to live. Paul does this everywhere too in his letters to the churches in a dozen different ways. He says it, be who you are. Just be who you are. So they're Christians. They're fresh ones for sure, newly minted, but they're Christians, people of the day, people of the light. As Paul puts it in verse 9, they had obtained salvation through Jesus. And that didn't happen 
That did not happen to them because they'd made Jesus really happy with their good behavior. That did not happen because they had done some elaborate ritual for him, like all of the gods of the pantheon would have required of them. They had obtained salvation just like every other Christian has, anytime, anywhere, any place, through our Lord Jesus who died for us. That's what Paul says. <laughs> through the one who stepped in and took your place and mine, through the one who gave his life as a ransom, through the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, through faith in him. Athanasius, the fourth century Coptic church father, said that Jesus became what we are, that we might become what he is. And church, you know what that means we are? Children of God, co-heirs with Jesus in the household of the Father. And it's important, it's important to also say people who can stand in the day of the Lord, not because we're sinless, not because we have our acts together, not because we keep our noses clean. Thank God that's not how you and I get to stand in that day. <laughs> but because Jesus laid down his life for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live with him. We stand because he stands for us. We stand because he stands with us. So be who you are. People of light and people of day, people awake, people sober, people of faith and people of hope and people of love, people who live vigilant lives of fidelity towards God, vigilant lives of fidelity toward one another, people who love our neighbors with the same self-giving, self-forgetful love that we have been loved with. That way of living, church, I'm going to tell you, that way of living sustains people like you and me in this long game of life. It sustains us. It keeps us from foolishness. It keeps us from harm. It keeps us from hurt, both to ourselves and the people around us. And living this way anticipates what the world will definitely look like when that day comes. And if we live right now, in a way that looks like what things will look like when that day comes, it will serve as a beautiful witness, an eloquent witness. And we will join in mission with sisters and brothers living in this way all around the world who are pointers to the one who in grace, in mercy, in love said, I am the light of the world. <laughs> I am the light of life. Let me pray for us. Father, it's hard, uh, it's hard for us to just understand the, the, the great grace of this thing that we live because Christ died for us, that that is the thing that he was getting at so that we can live with him, beside him as co-heirs in your kingdom, able to call you Father. And so we ask, Father, in, in this way that that would uh, help us that, that knowing that, that the power of your spirit enlivening us, enlivening us would help us to live uh, sober, to live awake, to live watchful, to live ready. Father, do this uh, so that we'll grow up in our faith. Do this so that we can uh, 
live in ways that increase peace and flourishing and good in this world. Do this so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken place. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.